0: Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, and more. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Thank you for listening.
1: everyone, welcome to episode 23. This is Paige and I'm here with Monica and our wonderful guest Kofi from Black Lives Matter Chicago. I'm super excited. Hey, how you doing?
2: I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm like so honored to be in this space with y'all. I, I was nervous, uh, but we're we here, <laughs> we're doing it, so I'm looking forward to it.
1: Me too. Chances are, if you have been to anything related to Black Lives Matter or really any uh Protests or disruption in the city—you have seen Kofi. Um, Kofi is really someone that I look up to as not only an organizer and a leader in the movement, but also as someone who just really shows up and represents what solidarity looks like. And so I'm super stoked to pick your brain because I feel like <laughs> you actually play do a lot of work behind the scenes. Uh, yes. And I and I know you've been on the scene though for a really long time and are very thoughtful and intentional. So I'm stoked. This is going to be a great episode. Yeah. The book is. <laughs> I got you, I got you. The book is
0: ready for revolution. The life and struggles of Stokely Carmichael um, by Stokely Carmichael. So I'm really excited. I I don't know too much about Stokely Carmichael. Uh Um, I know uh, that he was part of SNCC. Um, I know that he um, was deemed by the FBI as like a dangerous person um, because they saw him as the messiah sort of figure, that charismatic figure, right? Um, And then I also know that he coined the term black power is what i've read about him um Mm -hmm. and so that's like the the extent to what i know about (laughs) him so i'm really excited for this episode
2: wonderful
1: cool let's start with um with our typical first question which is who are you what do you do and why
2: gotcha yeah i mean that is such a uh crucial question right like who, who are we talking to so uh as you mentioned my name is kofi adamola uh, organizer with Black Lives Matter Chicago. I'm also a member of Ujima Medics, Umedics for short, um, and I've come into this space, um, you know, f- since about Trayvon Martin. Um, I was with another group uh, with a brother named Diallo Kenyatta, and we did this uh, event called "From Trayvon Martin to Emmett Till: What Now," and we were trying to, you know, establish that sort of historical continuum of uh, the violence that we were experiencing at the hands of so-called vigilantes, right? Um, And we also did another event um, highlighting what happened to Oscar Grant and Troy Davis and, like, connecting that to state violence uh, in uh, in addition to, like, mass incarceration. So work around, like, police violence, state violence, um, I have been doing since about, like, 2011, 2012. Um, You know, that, like, really you know, caught my attention uh, just because, you know, I'm I'm a 90s, you know, kid. So I, I come from a situation where, you know, I was young when Rodney King happened, right? But, like, that resonated with us because, you know, we knew people in the hood that got beat up. We knew people that got shot and all of that, right? Um, but you hadn't really, like, seen it capture national attention until, you know, Trayvon Martin happened. Even when Oscar Grant happened, it, it still wasn't, like this, you know, huge outcry or um uh what's the brother name? Amadello in uh New York when he was killed, you know, there wasn't still this huge outcry. Um but prior to that, you know, i I'm I call myself like the Forrest Gump of Chicago. <laughs> and, and the reason why I give myself that label is because like if you remember the movie, like he was just moved through all these spaces and come across all these famous people, right? But You know, he was sort of indifferent to it. You know, he he was just living his life, and he just so happened to, like, meet presidents, meet celebrities, meet all these different people. Um, And literally, for you know, being in Chicago, as big as Chicago is, you know, I've come across, you know, some of the the most known people. And I I really don't talk about this, um, but I was in Public Allies before. I don't know if you all are familiar with that, but it's basically they took 18 to 35-year-olds, trained you in social justice and organizing and put you in a community-based organization. So they placed me with Northwestern Community Law Clinic, and I was under the tutelage of uh, Bernadine Doran. And had no clue who Bernadine Doran was, you know what I mean? Um, at the time, Michelle Obama was transitioning out as the executive director, so she used to have Barack come through and do trainings for us. How ironic. You know, he's coming through <laughs> teaching, you know, us how to organize, how to, wow. you know, the the Alinsky style of organizing, right? Organize people, organize money, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, you know, in my, my cohort, in my class was uh, Malik Youssef, you know, um, and at that time I was deep into the underground hip-hop scene. So, you know, I was throwing parties and, you know, we used to have, you know, Kanye come through to perform. And, you know, just, like, all these different weird interactions. You know, we had a cable access show, you know, uh, called the What's Up Show. Um, we would have all these hip-hop acts come through. Uh, Common used to come through all the time. and show was Love. And just because we were throwing parties and concerts, like, we had people all the time. So that's kind of like, you know, my life in chicago I've, I've come across so many different amazing people in, in so many different points and times um but never like really you know too affected by it you know and just still kind of going my own lane living my life doing what i'm doing uh but having like you know these unique experiences uh just with you know the who's who of chicago as far as like you know organizing and you know music and what have you and politics obviously too so Uh, So that that's kind of my background. I, you know, I was trained in community organizing when I was 18 Um, Prior to that, you know, I was heavy into gang life Um, You know, I caught a felon when I was 17 um, And you know was immediately pushed out of certain types of employment Um, College didn't seem feasible for me at the time Uh, You know, I was homeless for a while uh, and it wasn't until like I got into the hip hop scene, where and I started to kind of change my life, and then I got into organizing um, and, and getting involved with that kind of stuff. That kind of pushed me in a different direction. Uh, but I lost, you know, several friends to gun violence. I lost several friends to, to being, um, you know, given life sentences and just all the, you know, unfortunate, typical experience. Um, so at some point, you know. I got politicized, uh, and I was, you know, never an avid reader. You know, I was good academically, but I never, like, you know, sought to achieve anything big with that, right? Um, so it wasn't until I was introduced to certain types of reading that it kind of, like, really politicized me and changed the way I see things. But, you know, I'm trying to do that segue and transition, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah so uh for me some of the first books i read uh were you know autobiographies so i read the autobiography of um malcolm x i read the autobiography of che Guevara, and uh that really propelled me into like a complete understanding because especially for like malcolm and you know looking how his life evolved you know being from red you know to the from the hustler to you know going to prison and having that experience to You know becoming one of the most prolific people ever to come into movement space um you know and and getting to see his evolution and seeing that i I had that potential that i could be like malcolm like that was you know a big influence for me uh and then to see again the trials and tribulations that che went through you know che had asthma like me you know che you know uh, was a person of the people you know um even though i didn't have any aspirations to go to medical school you know that was still like inspirational that he went through all that And said I'm gonna do this for the people Uh, so that is like what really kind of like opened my eyes to a lot of things and um, I ended up somehow coming across uh, Stokely and Stokely is by far one of the most influential people for me Um, and you know what's so unique and powerful about him uh, and just everybody of that time is just their community you know people like to cherry pick certain, you know, people that were doing organizing and activism at that time. But the reality, it, w- it was such, you know, it was so rich and full of so many beautiful people doing so much powerful work. Um, and they are like, were just in these similar circles, you know, and it like, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but just sort of the reflection of what I see now, you know, just the community that we're in, that all the people that we interface with and all the people that are doing this work, um, sometimes you just got to take a step back and appreciate it, you know, uh, because, you know, what I liked about Stokely is I think he did that. He he took time to, like, admire certain people, and, you know, he acknowledges who they were, how they impacted his life, and, um, you know, who he studied and, and, and who, you know, imbued him with certain wisdom and why that was important and how that impacted his politic and the way that he maneuvered through spaces. Um, so you know, I think that was, like, pivotal and, and important for me to, like, kind of see that, so.
0: Well, you yeah. just straight up stole my second question, which was <laughs> what led you to read this book, and, and so I'm hearing that you really just, you know, dived into autobiographies, um, yeah. because, you know, reading these, spreading these uh, stories of and, and personal narratives of people were really, like, um, a way for you to identify with people and, and, and see yourself moving into that organizing and activist direction. Um, that's right. So, um, but you mentioned the Alinsky style uh, organizing a little while ago, so yeah. can you tell me in three words how you feel about Alinsky style organizing?
2: Effective but limited.
0: Mm, that's on point. All right. Did somebody like tell you like read this dang book like you have to read this or did you just like happen to like come across it? Dick do you remember the moment where you actually like decided like I need to read this autobiography in particular?
2: Yeah, I, I wish that uh, I did have someone like sort of push me in that direction. Um, I'm what's called an auto dick deck and all that means is I'm self taught, self learner, right? Um, and It was just my own curiosity that sort of like pushed me to figure things out and you know put puzzle pieces together you know because i'm i'm coming up in you know the late 90s early 2000s and i'm like you know there are no more black panthers there are no more you know um black liberation army you know at least there's a big disconnect for me so i'm trying to fill in the gaps of my knowledge of like what really happened. Like I knew, you know, a little bit about COINTELPRO, but not that much. You know, I knew a little bit about, you know, what happened with, you know, gangs and drugs, you know, through the 70s, 80s and 90s, right? But again, I didn't know, you know, specifically here in Chicago about, you know, what happened to Fred Hampton, you know, outside of, you know, the margins of the stories, right? Um, So for me, it was just really this thirst to understand you know, why things were the way they were, to have an analysis, to have a framework, but also to figure out where I can plug in. What does my work look like? You know, but I didn't want to just haphazardly kind of jump into things, right? I wanted to make sure that I was grounded in something that would inform how I should move. Um, And, you know, the big names, of course, like I said, were like Che, were like Malcolm, you know, and and so many other names that we can uh, talk about. But it was something uh, about Stokely because I guess I was looking for like, you know, how the Black Panthers got started. So, you know, I knew about Huey, I knew about Bobby Seale and what they were doing in Oakland, but, um, you know, I got wind that, you know, it was the organizing that was happening in the South um, that really kind of inspired them in addition to what they were learning about Mao and Marx's, uh, you know, practice praxis, and all of that. Um, So, I was like, well, who was kind of doing that work? You know what I mean? And, again, at this time, I had a huge gaps in my knowledge. Like, I didn't know about SNCC per se. Uh, I didn't know the relationship of, you know, King and SLC with SNCC. Um, and I really didn't know about Stokely Carmichael. Uh, so I saw, said, hey, well, this is a good place to start. You know, I knew I know what was happening in Harlem with Malcolm, but I don't really know what was happening in the South. I kind of know what was happening in California with the Panthers, um, hopefully, this will inform me, and then I can, you know, research, uh, you know, what was happening here in Chicago.
1: I'm, as you're speaking, I'm realizing that this is one of um, the first books that's an autobiography. I think that we've done, um, other mm-hmm. than Fanny Rushing, mm-hmm. uh, and it's other than I've uh, eyes on the, uh, I've got the light of freedom. This is a a uniquely sort of it's it's telling it's it's helping us uh, understand the history, right? Um, And with that means that there's going to be a lot of names. And organizations and references and we're not gonna ask you to define all of them Um, and you're gonna and go and and when we get to this you know uh, question of walk us through the book go ahead and do that but very quickly two things that I know are already gonna come up because they already have Mm -hmm. so SNCC right SNCC is for folks uh, just you know SNCC if you don't know stands for the student um, nonviolent coordinating Coordinating committee Committee. it grows out of Ella Baker recognizing this power of the sit-in movements, mm-hmm. which is launched by four young men who sit in at uh, what's the name of the restaurant? Do you remember? Macombs? Um, uh, McCom- McCom- or Woolworths? Yeah, yeah. Woolworths. They're yeah. actually these are four young people who are trained, well, well, the leaders trained by the NAACP Youth Councils. But anyway, mm-hmm. so Ella, uh, it sparks these sit-ins. Ella Baker. Convenes all of these young people, um, and SNCC grows out of it's a it's a student movement that ultimately transitions a uh, uh, direct action movement that ultimately grows into like a really deep neighborhood rural organizing uh, uh, organization that was extremely important um, yeah. for the civil rights movement. And it's remembered a lot of times for its sit-in movements and sort of registration, but it did a lot to Oregon. That's where Fannie Lou Hamer, right, mm-hmm. is, is how we know her name. Right. Um, anyway, so so folks so folks that understand it's young uh, and it's it's – Freedom Summer, all those things. Then you have SCLC, you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That's yeah. King's organization, and they wanted to steal SNCC and make it their own. Um, and a lot of S- a lot of what they get a lot of credit for things that SNCC actually was really critical That's for. Right. So just so folks know, those are two things right there. An important yeah. dynamic. Um, now, having said those things very quickly, uh, what walk us through the book? Who is Stokely Carmichael slash Kwame Ture? What was his? What did he do? Why, why do
2: you like all this walk yeah. us through his life in the book so he's um trinidadian born uh born on the island well he was no i'm sorry he was born in the states but his parents are from the island and just the opening of the book you know he just kind of breaks down um you know the experiences with that and so <laughs> so he grew up in his what no so this is his pop story so his, his pops grew up in a situation. Where he was you know in a in a in a household where it was basically led by the grandmother, the mom, he had like five sisters, um, so you know being like the only boy running around uh, so he you know he was in this matriarchy that he like really appreciated it. and when he first met his wife to be, you know her biggest critique of him was like, well, he's not a real man. I met him and he was ironing people's clothes uh, <laughs> you know he's he's cooking food. You know, he's preparing food for the household. You know, who, who is this guy? You know, he's, he's not a real man. What is what is he doing with himself? And um, he really just talks about the dynamic. Uh, he, he gets into to gender dynamics, you know, early on in the book and, and talking about, you know, how his family kind of challenged some of those traditional roles uh, and how that impacted directly his, his mom and dad's relationship. Um, but he gets to a point where uh, they, you know, They court each other, they date, you know, they really bond. And then it becomes like a power struggle between uh, his soon to be wife and the sisters and the mom. And she gets fed up to a point where she's like, "Um, I have an opportunity. I'm moving to the States. And if you love me, I see you there. If you don't deuces, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and she straight up just dips to New York. And mind you, his father doesn't have like any credentials, you know, doesn't have the means to do the paperwork. Uh, but he somehow figures it out and he, he ends up in the states <laughs> and he finds her and uh they ended up you know getting married and you know uh he was a carpenter by trade so you know they pretty much got some land for cheap and he built his own house um and started off the Carmichael family and uh you know Stokely I think is the middle child I want to say uh so he has you know uh older siblings, younger siblings and, you know, he just talks about growing up in New York um, in this kind of, like, black but, you know, Jewish neighborhood, uh, going to school within those kind of dynamics. And he's such a great storyteller. Uh, I wish, like, somebody encouraged him to, like, write some, you know, nonfiction and fiction and just, you know. I mean, he's, he's so brilliant. Uh, he just gives you these, like, visuals of his home and just the descriptions are just so immaculate. But... Um, He walks us through, like, going through middle school, through high school, you know, dealing with um, not that much racism, funny enough. Uh, You know, his father was self-employed. His mom worked. So, you know, they were so self-sufficient that they didn't really have to, like, buck up against, like, white supremacy in the system that much. Um, And, you know, there, there obviously were times where they experienced it. But for the most part, they were, like, insulated in community. Uh, but Soakley also, like, lovingly talks about the, the Trinidad culture, um, and always, like, he's always connecting it back to his experiences later on in Africa, so, you know, he'll show you the similarities between that and, like, the experience he had in Nigeria or Ghana, and, you know, he'll talk about, you know, um, you know, the drumming and the dance and, you know, even the spirituality. Um, so, he gets us all the way to, like, college, right? He ends up going to Howard and, um, you know, just just his perception uh, of just like capturing people's mind state, you know, and forgiving them because you know he knows, uh, you know, some people are colonized and you know they they view it through a lens not of their own making, right? They were indoctrinated into this kind of style of thinking, but he gives you a clear delineation between like the African students coming over, the students like himself from the Caribbean, and then uh, the the Africans born in America, and it's a clear like distinction that the Africans born here in America like bought into this idea of integration and upward mobility that you know I'm going to become this lawyer and doctor and I'm going to be prestigious and you know despite you know structural racism and all that you know there is a way you know there's a path for me to take right and um, you know the colorism right because everybody wants you know this you know pretty light-skinned girl to have a wife and kids with and um, you know, just all these sort of trappings of colonial thinking, uh, you know, he sees really in the American students versus like the African students come there and they're figuring out how to take all their skills and knowledge back to, to, to their village, you know, and, and build businesses out there and build, you know, because um, this was a time where a lot of them were, you know, becoming free from their colonial powers. So they've been liberated from, you know, English, British rule, you know, um, Portuguese rule and and um uh you know just all the different um European countries that had colonized different parts of west and east Africa. So because of this like new sp- found spirit of liberation that was happening like in the 50s and early 60s, you know, a lot of African students were like really immersed in that spirit, you know what I mean? And it was just in complete contrast of what, you know, the American students were experiencing. Um but being in that space, uh, you know, this is where he first, you know, is learning about, you know, this is where he's first being politicized by his professors, you know. And this is where, he, you know, he, he learns from Ella Baker and he learns, um, you know, from, from all these different experiences around being taught, you know, about organizing and, you know, some of the first sort of civil disobedience they were doing on the East Coast. Uh, he participated in that, and that like you know gave him this you know framework. But then he even like you know critiques himself because he said you know at the time we we were like these radical reformists you know, and it, it's so funny the similar language that we hear you know um, it was this like thinking that like there's obviously something inher- inherently wrong with the system. However, if we push this certain policy or we change this and that, you know we, we can build more power for ourselves, and you know we'll be okay right so um he talks about this experience going to hear malcolm x for the first time uh and i was actually going to read that passage later so maybe i'll get into that but i mean again what i was saying earlier about just all these like phenomenal people that he was coming across you know um and and, you know who he was having these conversations with uh you know you just wish you could time travel just to kind of like you know be in that spirit but again I feel like I am in that spirit you know with with the current generation that we're in and what we're doing, but um so he talks about that, and then he talks about uh you know first going down to Mississippi, and uh he said, not only did I go down and learn, but I went down there to unlearn, and they they taught me so much that I needed to forget you know, and that was like important to me because uh, he went out there you know with this critique of like the black middle class and you know what was happening on the East Coast. Um, but he, he was completely like disconnected to the experience, you know, happening in the South. And the other thing he said is, you know, even though I, you know, I come from the islands, um, I felt like this, this was my home. This was my ancestry. I felt like this place was calling to me. Uh, and he talks about the organizing he did down in the Delta and, um, you know, just the abject poverty and the, the, the pure hatred and racism that they had to like navigate through, um, you know, and, and how like, disheartening and challenging that was but at the same time it like sparked something in him that you know for him uh there was complete eradication or death like he he, there was no way that they could tolerate being in spaces like that and leaving people in those kind of situations um and so that like really set a tone and kind of radicalized him where he you know he like upgraded his politic, um, where, you know, I I would say now, if I use language that we use now, I I would say that he became an abolitionist at that point. You know, it it wasn't about, you know, conforming or taking power. Um, But he also understood, along with everybody else during that time, that, you know, you still had to, like, work within the system, unfortunately, and build power, you know, because if you got people that, um, you know, around, you know, especially around that time with with voting rights, uh, you know, how they got funding was, you know, Kennedy was trying to build up the black base, so he would give money, you know, towards groups like SNCC and other groups to, um, you know, do voter registration and and organize around that, but they would take the money and say, fuck that, you know, and uh, you know do their own thing you know with trying to build up that base of power uh and like you know doing schools doing education um, doing job training doing all these like alternative things that just wasn't available because there were no like you know not for profits there were no social institutions like taking pe- care of people in the south it just it just didn't exist um you know he talked about an experience um where uh little kids would have like boils on their face uh, and they were like you know what's going on you know we need to get some doctors out here and they did that and it was from like the pesticides from the crops you know they would get sprayed with it and then they would pick at it and you know now they have all these boils and scars and marks Um, and there was no one doing research around how pesticide you know impacts your immune system and and, and other things so.
0: So I want to pause right there Um, you know it sounds like what you were saying is that uh, Stokely Carmichael got um, politicized, one, by his professors um, while he was at Howard University, um, but then also by like actually going down on the ground um, mm-hmm. in the South and, and doing organizing work there. Um, how did other people in the South? How did other organizers view him? Does he talk about that at all? Like as hi- as a you know. It, it, I don't know, not middle class, or what would you say? Was it working class or middle class that Stokely was?
2: No, I would definitely put him in a category of middle class. Okay,
0: yeah, so how, yeah, so how, did he talk about how people um, viewed him coming, you know, from the East Coast um, into the South?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, it wasn't even, like, a, a perception of, like, oh, here's this uppity Negro that thinks he's better than us, right? It, it was literally, like, you know, they... they they saw him for who he was, you know what I mean? And they saw a lot of them for who they were. So it wasn't this like, who are these strangers coming in our town, you know, assuming that they know what's best for us. Because that isn't how they presented themselves. They came into the space like, you know, this is who we are. What do you need? How can we help you with that? And what does that look like? You know, Um, and I think that's the best and only way that you can come into space. And because of that, um, they were more receptive to him and then just plus the conditions were so horrendous that you know the fact that anybody was coming and cared you know about anything the reception was just there um, one thing that he talked about you know that I, I do with some of the young people that I work with now is you know again challenging how we sort of perceive things so you know he wrote on uh, and I'm sure he wasn't the first to do this but you know, he wrote on uh, you know a little board, um, you know, say this word, and the word was, you know, he wrote it, R E C, you know, A S T O, and it was like, you know, record store, and you know, then he wrote, you know, record store, right? And he was like, you know, which one is the way you're supposed to say it? And they all said, you know, record store. And he was like, well, why is that? And then they had to think about that. And then who came up with that? Well, we don't know. And he was like, well, maybe, you know, let's say, for example, it was like, you know, uh, some professors at Yale or something that, you know, or Oxford that said that this was the right way to do it. And it was a way for for him to like have them really thinking about power and, you know, that even in language there's power, you know, how we even communicate, you know, and what's what's official and what isn't official. And, you know, you know we talk about code switching now, right, you know, um, but, you know that was his way to first, like, really break to them that, no, what you're saying is just as important and as powerful, if not more, because, you know, that's your shared language, that's your shared tongue, and you should value that, you know, and we get beat over the head in school that we have to speak a certain way and articulate ourselves, and if not, you know, there's something wrong with this, and it's a stigma put on it, so I think that was, like, a powerful way for him to, like, Really work on that decolonizing work, you know, to really push people to see themselves in a different way and to see value in their culture and their identity, um, and not always have this metrics of the closer proximity you are to whiteness, you know, the better person that you are and the more you know accepted you are.
1: So Stokely becomes the last chairman, I believe, of of SNCC, um, and and does can you can you talk a bit about that or or if there's other things before that that you want to talk about. Um, and I'm curious to know more about what his leadership looked like, and as much as you can, sort of talk through some of the big changes that he made around SNCC, and because uh, I know that he had a has a controversial legacy with with what some of the things that he did.
2: Well, that's what I was gonna say. I think there was always sort of this like duality for him, where he just he was never kind of satisfied on sort of their limitations, what they could and couldn't do. Uh, but also, he always felt like that, you know, again, they didn't name it as this, but that respectability politics was always, like, looming over them and, and in the background. Um, but he also talks about that, you know, he 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 names that he wants more people from that area era that were part of SNCC to tell their story, to write about it. Uh, because in this book, uh, which I think was published in, like, 98, maybe 97, um, and by the way, you know, he was – they were writing this while he was like on his deathbed. You know, um, he would eventually die from cancer. But he he says that a lot of the stories were convoluted. That um, it was a lot of outside people and in, in at the parameters that really were telling the stories about Snick in particular. Um, so he w- he said that don't look at this book as like the history of Snick. You know, he he referenced other people I can't think off the top of my head that he said will be more poignant and that that's who you need to talk to about the particulars of what we were doing uh, around that. But I'm just kind of sharing with you with my experiences and what I saw, how I felt, and what I was thinking at the time. Um, but all throughout that, he always talked about sort of a conflict of, you know, uh, of I don't want to say moral um, kind of like what he thought in his like simple term of like right and wrong. I don't think it was about that. But I think it was still about him sort of trying to push his politics beyond, you know, are we organizing just to kind of keep ourselves in the same conditions? You know, um, like what are we, what's to really be gained, you know, from this? And um, not to like jump the gun and fast forward, but it wasn't until like he went to Africa that um, he really just adopted, you know, what I think stayed with him since then. Uh, which was his politic around revolution and what revolution could and should look like. I think prior to that, it was still this kind of, like, pondering of, you know, I think what we're stuck with, right? How do we deal with this harm reduction? How do we get our people and alleviate some of the struggle we're dealing with, but at the same time build power and what does that look like and how do we even define power, right? Um, So in this book, he doesn't go into the particulars of, like, you know, my leadership versus this leadership or, you know, um, you know, sort of the, the internal struggles or, or political differences that they were having. He, he does name a few things. Um, but more so he just talks about, um, again, on the ground stuff, like what was happening in, in, in um, Mississippi, what was happening in, in, um, uh, the county, uh, I was, Mess up the name. I want to call it Lawndale, but it's because I'm thinking about the Lowndale. right, right, Lawrence yeah. County. There we go. You know, I'm stuck on the west side, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, he he always goes into like the specifics and particulars about that instead of like getting into like naming the political struggles that they were having internally. Yeah.
1: And the th- so the thing I'm s- sort of alluding to is mm-hmm. his decision to k- uh, kick out all the white people of mm-hmm. SNCC, mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm less concerned, yeah, with going talking about what what that meant for SNCC and all of that, and more. This is also at the moment where, I, where, um, yeah, he's coined the phrase Black Power, mm-hmm. um, and and I, you know, we say that now and we do our fist, and I don't know if I really understand how what that must the. the how different it must have been for him to be saying this at yeah. the time, and like how that must have shook folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, what how what does he say about Black Power? What yeah. is it? Um, and and does he talk at all about you know how he came to that? How and and then I do want to hear you know where he went after six. I know nothing about other than mm-hmm. him changing his name and ending up in Africa. <laughs> That's all I know, right? right. Um, is that he's the guy that like kicked out all the white people and said <laughs> Black Power, um, and then. Yeah, left. Uh, so if, but I'm curious, what what is, Stoke, what is Stokely at the time say? Black power is.
2: Yeah, well, Stokely always had like a, a hard critique of the white liberal. Um, you know, Stokely was the first person that educated me about what was happening in Palestine. You know, and what the relationship was with, with Israel and what that looked like. Um, so Stokely o- early on always had like an analysis of like um, white hegemonic power. And, um, you know, we have to remember at the time the Democratic Party was very strong in the South and they were unapologetically racist um, party. And, you know, he was down there witnessing people get killed. Um, and going back to what I was speaking about earlier about teaching, you know, trying to decolonize people and teaching people, you know, that, that sort of thinking around self-determination I guess the contradictions were just too hard to struggle like how can we talk about self-determination and here we are um kind of depending upon white people to still like build power with us you know what i mean like maybe we need to redefine their role and how we we interface them with them and what what does that look like um so i think it was after the struggle of you know building uh the the black panther party not not the one that qe and and Bobby Seale would later on adopt, but the the one in Lowes County. Um, I think that experience, uh, along with, um, you know, a few activists uh, being murdered, really like pushed him to like be unapologetically black and like just own it. Cause I mean, at the time he thought he was gonna die anyway. So why, you know, I got the media's attention I'm gonna use this platform. You know, I may be walking with, with Dr. King and I may be you know, organizing side by side with all these other people, but it is important for our people to see us in a certain way. And he learned that from working with the people in Mississippi. He, he, he saw how that just empowered people when they thought of themselves in a different way, in a loving way, in a way where they, again, saw a value of who they are and, and started to take pride in their identity you know, we weren't afforded that, especially in the South. So to flip that paradigm and give people this sense of importance and this sense of like, you know, connection that I'm in, I'm in community that is is more than just me, and that my experiences aren't like individual. That these are the experiences that the the entire diaspora is going through. Um, we have to capture that, and I think you know. Um, that's what really kind of drove him to to move towards in that direction.
0: How was his, um, his organizing style or his like theories of change? How how did um that stand out from like other organizers in your opinion?
2: Kwame Nkrumah at the time was working on um, what they would term African scientific socialism, and it was this idea that you know Africa predating Marxist theory and predating you know a lot of you know, European capitalism, all of this, you know, indigenous folk, African folk, were already communal. And that's really what communism, you know, is, right? It's this is this shared um, sense of identity, shared labor, shared power, you know, this egalitarian kind of way of, of operating. And so that's really what Kwame Nkrumah was, you know, saying that, you know, that we are African, that African is communal, that African is socialism. But also, you know, we're, we're going to apply science to it, right? So we're going to think about a resource-based system. We're going to, you know, use science to, to figure out, you know, our consumption and our needs and make sure that everybody's need is met and that the production matches that and the shared labor matches that. So, you know, we're going to be very intentional about, you know, how we operate that that system. Uh, and then, you know, taking that, that socialist um, uh, stance of, uh, you know from from a Marxist Leninist kind of perspective uh and you know synthesizing you know all of those things into like one framework and uh you know Stoke and Carmichael who would become Kwame Ture was fascinated by that and um sat side by side with Kwame Nkrumah to, to work on that theory and to work on that practice um so then when uh, Kwame Nkrumah was um Pushed out of power, you know, CIA basically, you know, got to his generals and did a coup, you know, like we see all over the world, right? Sioki um, Torre uh, welcomed him with open arms and made him his co president and said, Now you're going to come to my country and you're going to lead with me. And Stokely went with him and he got to see, you know, that happen, you know what I mean? And again, this is a time when Patrice Lumumba was around, you know, before they assassinated him. So you had the African Union that was very powerful. So you had a, a very power power emerging out of Africa while the potential of revolution was happening, you know, in the States. Um, but as you saw, you know, the assassination of first Malcolm and then King and then COINTELPRO going into a full effect with the Panthers and, you know, people having to, to escape like Asada and people being assassinated or incarcerated, you know, the conditions were changing in the States. But then you saw the sort of the same attacks happening in Africa, with Nkrumah being ceded from power, with Patrice Lumumba being assassinated. Um, so you saw like the West take this hard, like you know, um, Cold War kind of stance of you know, in using their their tension with communism and Russia as the. But but the reality was is they were more afraid of Africa than they were of Russia and communism. They were afraid of the allegiance of, with, with Cuba and with, uh, with South America. That scared them, you know. Um, the fact that, you know, that, that, that self-determination was really starting to develop. Um, so they had to do everything they could to, to, to fight back against that. And they, they came down with a vicious hammer, unrelenting, you know, bloodshed. Uh, and that, that's what they do best. And, you know, Kwame Ture experienced it firsthand. You know, he, he was fighting colonizers. You know, he was practicing war tactics. He was practicing strategy. But he was also practicing theory and, and, and you know, being able to, to think and to write and to um, really process everything while everybody else was kind of experiencing stuff back in the States. So I think that's what really, like, made him sort of unique, uh, just all these different experiences that he culminated from growing up to being in Africa to sort of solidify everything. So by the time he was able to come back to the states, you know, when he started the um, All African People's Revolutionary Party, that, you know, that set him in a in a different stage than a lot of people. Yeah.
1: So this is the week pre- uh, following Charlottesville, right? And I've seen several quote uh, uh, images on Twitter of Stokely and and that quote of his about um, something about how like you cannot. Do you know what I'm talking about? So, like if he doesn't have a conscience, if he doesn't have a conscience, I, I, yeah, um, you can't make a moral argument, right? Um so I, but so I think for me, S- S- Stokely represents this sort of tension um and and uh, and and anxiety or, or questions and 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 debate and and really deep thinking around violence and uh, and I- I- in terms of our getting free. Um, and so, can you talk about what? It, how did Stokely understand what is uh, nonviolence? What and versus other means of? I think that there's a false binary that gets presented us. So there's either nonviolence or there's violence, and I don't think that's quite right. Um, and I, and I think he did complicate that, right? Uh, and and but did he have conclusions? What What do you remember about what he says about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Um, I think people today would frame. Stokely is an extremist, right? Um because he didn't compromise. He he thought big. He thought macro. You know, he he participated in war, so he thought strategically through war. But one thing that Stokely did is he looked at white culture, you know, the, for lack of better terminology, he felt like was inherently pathological. Um and I mean, he gave so many historical examples of that and he felt like they were parasitic, that they were, you know, just about destroying, dominating, conquering, and that was about it. And they would flip sort of the narrative that they were civilized and everyone else was savages, but to Stokely it was the other way around. Um, So through, you know, constant genocide, um, land theft, all of those things, right, that we know about. So I would say that Stokely ultimately came to the conclusion that you are absolutely, like Malcolm X said, in your, your your right as a human being to defend yourself. You're absolutely in your right to self determine. However, if something gets in the way or impedes that, then you have to meet it with mutual force. Um, so there wasn't this idea that, you know, like you just said, like you can with the psychopath there is no appealing, no no empathy. There's no way to kind of get them to, you know, understand that they shouldn't kill you or rape you and harm you, right? That, that they just won't stop. So you have to stop them. And that's a hard truth that a lot of people don't want to struggle with, you know, because we are trying to be morally right. We are trying to be upright and virtuous and, you know, empathetic and loving and caring. But, it's very difficult when you're dealing with the enemy that doesn't feel any of those things, um, and you really have to ask yourself that hard philosophical question. Not only am I willing to die for this, but am I willing to kill for this? And what does that look like? And where, you know, where do I, loo- you know, not cross the line? One thing I will say, um, and I wish I had the book in front of me, but Fidel wrote a book around you know um, some of the military strategy that they did, and one thing that he said, especially in the Angola war. Is he had a pilot that uh, killed some civilians that you know that shouldn't have happened? Immediately pulled that p- pilot back. Didn't necessarily reprimand him as far as like disciplining him, executing him, and, you know, considering him a war criminal. They got him treatment for trauma. And what Fidel said is, we don't want to create machines. We don't want to create someone that can kill without feeling anything. And he was very intentional about that and he knew and understood the consequences of war that if you send somebody to kill they're going to get a taste for it and they're going to want to do it and they're going to be inspired and empowered by that or they're going to be completely broken down and you know which we know to be you know post-traumatic stress disorder right but they were very intentional about making sure that people didn't get pulled into that as the best as they could as they waged war you know dealing with that contradiction. So I just Mm -hmm. wanted to uplift that but if we look at it anywhere in history, there hasn't been struggle without armed struggle, um, and no one has morally convinced anybody to stop colonizing them and stop, you know, killing them. So, I think that's ultimately what Stokely, aka Kwame Ture's, kind of position was on what what we consider to be violent. You know, he thought it'd be violent just to sit aside and allow somebody to destroy your body and your family and you know your community.
0: So if um, an organizer or activist um, or community member were gonna pick up this book and, and read a chapter out of it, um, or, or is there a main, like, pivotal moment in the book that, um, that we can learn from, or, it's a three-part question, or what did you learn from this book? Um, what stood out for you, um, and what can all of us that are so busy every day doing, you know, on-the-ground work, what, wh- what could we, what's one thing we can learn from this and get out of this book?
2: I look at this book as a mirror. It's a reflection of exactly what we're experiencing now. I mean, now I think we have a a more evolved politic thanks to so many, you know, other voices in the movement. Um, you know, but what Stokely does is he acknowledges the gender dynamics from a male perspective, which you rarely see. You know, he, he acknowledges you know, Fannie Lou, he acknowledges, you know, Ella Baker and just all these other, you know, awesome women organizers. He uplifts, um, you know, Baldwin, uh, um, Bayard, and, you know, people that got stigmatized for, for homosexuality. Um, so Stokely was ahead of his time in a lot of ways in having that framework. But obviously, you know, we, we're so much, we're we're better now. We're still not where anywhere where we need to be, but we're better now in thinking about, you know, Who's most marginalized and disenfranchised, and you know, you know, deconstructing all the the harmful normative shit that we're dealing with, but um, one thing that I would say is that this really captures what was happening then, and it's so many stories and lessons in here that I think we all struggle with, um, you know, again philosophically. Interpersonal relationships. He he goes into depth about that. How we should feel with each about each other. How we should treat each other. Uh, it, it's literally almost reading your own story, you know, and and giving you a crystal ball view into um, the potentiality of what could happen or what should happen. Uh, so for me, uh, it's cathartic in that way, and it's visceral um, because it, it it really like hits to the heart of like the meat and potatoes of what we're, we're struggling with um, on a personal level, but also on a, on a community level. Um, it, it has a lot of hard earned lessons that, you know, we can either learn from and try to avoid or navigate through it as best we can, or we're just going to like, you know, continue that cycle. And that's sort of the inevitability of it. If we aren't like listening to our elders and our ancestors and you know, taking that direction because the the human experience is, is limited. You know, <laughs> so we, we can't think that we are in a space and time that's any different than anybody else, and that our experiences are so unique, and, and uh, different that there's no lessons to be learned.
1: I am. I I think this is going to be the first book that I go read as a result of an interview. Um, I I, I didn't actually know that this book existed, t- so I'm. I thank you very much. If you would close us out, though, with, you mentioned at the beginning that there's a lot of really amazing passages in here, but what's one? Uh, And then folks should go and read this for themselves to get the rest.
2: I chose this passage because, again, just who all was in this experience uh, and all the people that he named and how he frames it, I think is just sort of telling. Uh, But he talks about um, a debate that was put on just to bring Malcolm to Howard because there wasn't any other way. Malcolm basically had reached out to, to Bayard and was like, "Look, I get it. I get invited to Yale to, you know, um, all these white institutions. Why y'all not having me at the black space? You know." And it was like, "All right, Malcolm. The only way we can get you is we come have you come for a debate." Uh, so that's kind of where this picks up from. And this is, again, Stokely's first time ever. Like He obviously knew of Malcolm and heard his speeches, but this was the first time in person where he met him and then got to hear him, and his mind was completely blown. Um, so uh, he goes, talking about Malcolm, he politely declined to eat with us, explaining that for re- religious reasons, he ate only one meal each day. He sat a little apart, taking cup after cup of black coffee and our endless questions. Malcolm had a presence, something that you couldn't miss, nor neither could you quite name. It was a noticeable life force, an energy field, an aura, a something quite unlike that of any other leader that I've seen until I had the honor of meeting Peace Be Unto him. President Sioki C- uh, Torre, El Comandante Fidel Castro Reyes is a leader who also radiated a similar personal magnetism. Now, Dr. King had great charisma once he started to speak, That was the power, Uh, the African-spoken word, God's trombone. But before Dr. King unrolled that magnificent voice and revealed the eloquence of his moral force, he could be standing in a room, and you might easily not notice him. But if Malcolm or Sioki Tori or Fidel Castro stood, stood completely still and in silent in a large, crowded room, you, everybody knew it, Jack. Yes, you did. So there Malcolm sat drinking his coffee and answering our questions, and with every answer, his stock rose, as much because of his manner and his answers. He was unfailingly courteous, treating each questioner and his or her question with wit, care, and great respect, which put everyone at ease, only someone at ease, not entirely, because at the same time, he, also, he always radiated a ripple of tension, a bank power, and a quality of alert, guarded watchfulness that really was like a great cat. And everyone's presence could feel it. One small but electric moment made an impression on me, the only administrator at the dinner um, was Dean Patricia Roberts. Peace be unto her spirit. That she was there at all tells you why we all admire her. The dean was an attractive lady, close to Malcolm in age. Dean Roberts challenged something Malcolm had said, and a sharp, if formally polite, exchange ensued with both seemed to enjoy. Then Malcolm made a sally. I forgot exactly what, and, and gave the dean a long, challenging look, accompanied by his slightly ironic grin. Their eyes locked, locked for an instance, Then Dean Roberts, before she looked away, actually seemed to blush and emit something that sounds suspiciously like a soft giggle.
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears
0: open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout-out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy.
1: Keep reading!